We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you have your copy of God's Word, then go ahead and be turning there to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, before I get into the message, quick, um, quick thing, addition to the announcements. It's not July yet, so we're still making more announcements. <laughs> the offering envelopes there on the tables, you can also designate for the community fund in those as well. If you don't want to do the container, if you just want to write a check and drop that in, then you can go ahead and get those and put it on one of those. Mark it for community or community fund, and that'll get to the right place as well. <clears throat> so First Timothy chapter 2, talking this morning about prayer. I was talking the other night, actually, to Kim Carden. We were talking about some of our favorite podcasts, and I remembered one that I listened to for a little while, mainly because it only lasted for a little while. And the premise of it was pretty simple. In each episode, it started with an object that was found and then submitted to the hosts. And they would then investigate and explore the history of that object, trying to uncover all these interesting hidden stories about its past, like where it came from, why it exists. Um, I think I might have been the only one who listened to it. As I said, it didn't last very long. But I bring it up because a lot of times the object in question, the thing they were trying to figure out was a letter or some sort of written correspondence. And so they would start with this letter and the host of the show would try to piece together uh, the full picture of what was going on with those who wrote the letter, those who received the letter, and all the circumstances around it. Because when you know the person doing the writing and you know the person doing the receiving and the events that surrounded the letter, then you can better understand what is written in that letter. Right, and hopefully that's what we're going to be doing over the next few months here in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus. Because these letters, they contain some strong statements, but they aren't the only thing that we know about what Paul believed or how the early church functioned. And so if we can step back in time a little bit and understand the circumstances around these letters, I think we have a better chance of seeing and hearing the heart of Paul's message. So we look at these three letters to Paul from Paul to Timothy and to Titus, the main thing, the big theme that we see over and over again, driving everything he writes on every page, is really clear. It's what Paul's entire life, his entire ministry became about from the moment that he encountered Jesus, and that is making Jesus known. It's the title of our series. It's part of our mission statement as a church, making Jesus known. And it's not just my opinion or my interpretation that that's what Paul's life was about. That's how he described his life. In 1 Timothy 1.16, he says, I received mercy for this reason. So I was saved for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, Jesus saved me so that he could show his perfect patience in the midst of my sin and my brokenness so that others could see his love and come to faith in Jesus as well. So making Jesus known is our mission. It's what it's all about. Not just that we know Jesus and have a relationship with him, although I hope you do, but we're to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples and on down the line. And the big question that these three letters answer as we look at them over the next three months relates to that theme. What does a church that's making Jesus known look like? Last week we looked at chapter one and the answer was clear. Paul's goal in making Jesus known 
Paul's goal in planting churches was to see churches that were marked by the love of Christ. That's not new with Paul. Jesus told us the same thing, right? He said, the world will know you're my disciples by what? By the way that you love one another. But Paul says it here in his own way as he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So love is the goal. A church that has every theological question answered and addresses every cultural issue with powerful precision is a church that has missed the mark completely if it does not have love. Love is the goal of good theology. It's the goal of every cultural engagement that we make as Christians. The goal is not to be right or to prove ourselves right or to get more power and influence for ourselves. The goal is love. Love toward one another that overflows into every interaction we have. Love is the aim. It's the target that we are shooting for to be a church that is making Jesus known. And that looks like what we see here in chapter 2. The first charge to a church that's going to make Jesus known is Paul's call to pray. Pray for conditions where the gospel will advance. So let's read our passage for this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Father, this morning, as we look together at your word, We pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would show us what you want us to see, that you would would help us to hear what you have for us to hear, that we would respond to your word this morning with faith and with obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So pray for conditions where the gospel will advance. That's Paul's message to Timothy here. Pray toward that end. But also it's this, pray in such a way that helps bring about that goal. It's not just what we pray that matters. It also matters how we pray. Our posture matters when we pray, not so much physically, but spiritually. And so we should pray for conditions where the gospel will advance. And we see Paul coming at this from two different angles. The first is who and what to pray for, and the second is 
some really practical things about how we should pray. And so first we see him saying, pray for everyone, or to quote directly from verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? All people. So pray for everyone, he says. He urges supplications, asking or pleading for something. He urges prayers, intercessions, asking or pleading on behalf of another. He urges thanksgiving, praise for what God has already done. But the point isn't to make this checklist in your prayer life, to go down the list and mark each of those off every single day as if, you know, God's going to be mad at you if you didn't do enough supplicating one day versus another. The point is just to throw out every type of prayer imaginable here. Paul's piling up this list to make a very clear point. Pray for everyone and pray in all ways. And so it's not a good application of this text for us to pray just for the people that we like or to pray for the people that we like with passion as we plead with God to give them every good blessing we can imagine, and then turn around and pray for the people we don't like with disdain or indifference as we request that God would bring them down a few notches. The aim of all of this is what? It is love. And so Paul says, pray for everyone in every way, including those in positions of authority. There's an excellent example of the need for this verse and how to live it out just this past week. You may have seen on the news or on social media, President Trump showed up at McLean Bible Church in Virginia with just a few minutes notice, and he requested that their pastor, David Platt, pray for him. Now, for some of you, I realize I've already said the wrong name, and I get that, but we won't get into that because we don't get to pick and choose which leaders we're going to pray for or which leaders we're not going to pray for. Paul's command is to pray for all people, to pray for all who are in high positions. That includes people named Trump. It also includes people named Pelosi. We're to pray for our leaders, pray for wisdom and strength and blessing, and the greatest blessing of all, our ultimately greatest need for all of us, that they would come to faith in Jesus and receive every spiritual blessing that comes with knowing him. Pray for everyone. Pray for those you encounter on an everyday basis that maybe you overlook. Pray for those who are poor and marginalized in our society. Pray for those in need. Pray for those in high positions. Pray for everyone in between. And in so doing, don't do it to draw attention to yourself. Don't make it about you. If Paul's first command in this passage is to pray, then his highest priority for that prayer is that it would honor God and not the person doing the praying. We're to pray for those in high positions, kings, everyone. But then he makes it clear what the goal is. And it's not self-advancement or self-promotion. And so our prayer isn't, Lord, help Governor Bevan to see that I'm the smartest person in the state, so he'll do everything exactly like I want him to. Right? That's not what we're praying. He's calling us to pray, Lord, please help our governor see every person in this state as you see them. Give him wisdom to lead in a way that leads to peace and flourishing for every citizen of this state. And so we pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, our role in society isn't one where we have to be constantly trying to grasp for power because we've already got all the power that we need. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us. 
And so the success of the church, the advance of the gospel, doesn't require that we have any more advantage than we already have. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The King of Kings has already promised he will build his church, and he plans to do it through us, living lives marked by peace and quiet, godliness and dignity. And so being right in a way that is quarrelsome or divisive or without love isn't being right at all. The life of prayer that Paul calls us to isn't about us at all, and when we make it about us, then we get off track. The call to prayer is about reflecting who God is and pointing to the good news of Jesus. Verse 3, Paul points us to the priority of doing what's good and pleasing in God's sight, but then verse 4, he points to God's priority in the world, that all people would be saved that all people would come to knowledge of the truth. We see the love of God, his patience, his compassion toward us. Remember, the aim of the charge that Paul is giving here is love. And we see God's love here in his desire that all people would be saved. Because, verse 5, there's one God. He lays this foundation for a prayer life that reflects God here by getting down to the basics of what we believe. That there's one God, the God of the Bible, God, the Father who created everything, and there is one mediator, one Savior, Jesus, the prophet and priest and king who stands between us and the Father and is uniquely qualified to do that. Why? Because he paid our ransom. He paid for our sin with his life. He died, the only sinless man to ever live, so that we can be free. In verse 7, that's why Paul was appointed as an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles, because Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the only hope for sinful, broken humanity, no matter ethnicity or nationality or gender. If Jesus is the only way, then the urgency of getting the good news about him is bigger than, is greater than anything else we can imagine. It outweighs everything else that we might value in our lives. And so Paul says to pray for conditions where the gospel can advance, which means praying for everyone, for all people, those who are known and those who are in high positions pray in a way that humbles ourselves and in a way that magnifies our God. So there's part one of the message today, verses 1 through 7. I guess we have time to go on to verses 8 through 15. Wasn't sure if we were going to or not. So, but I guess we will. So there's the call to prayer for us as a church to pray for conditions where the gospel will advance. But part of that call is actually to live in a way that brings about those conditions. And so we don't get to pray for peace and quiet and dignity and then treat others with anger and disrespect. That would be hypocritical. It wouldn't make any sense. And so verses 8 through 15 give us some instructions on prayer and worship when we gather together as the church. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where things just went completely sideways? I think like you're having a conversation about one thing, you're trying to explain your perspective on it, and in doing that you introduce maybe a specific example to try to relate your ideas to make them more concrete, and you think that's what you've done, but then the other person just seizes on the example in a way that completely drowns out everything else you were saying. And so you thought you were having this deep conversation about the meaning of life, and they were just hearing you talk about nachos, right? That's a really extreme example, but 
I think you're familiar with the experience I'm describing, and it isn't maybe by any fault of theirs or by any fault of yours. You're both speaking and hearing and reacting based on your own perspective and your unique experiences. It's a matter of differing perspectives that causes one thing to appear bigger than another. And part of loving each other rightly in the church is understanding, understanding those different perspectives. Right? Hearing one another's experiences and concerns and then learning to love and respect each other in spite of some differences. I say that here for a couple of reasons. First, I believe it summarizes the heart of Paul's message here in these next few verses. But second, I believe it's what is probably about to happen in this room. And I'm going to ask you for grace as I attempt to faithfully teach this passage in a way that challenges us to love one another rightly and not in a way that divides or distracts us from the heart of the gospel message. So beginning in verse 8, Paul begins describing to Timothy and to us what this quiet, prayerful, gospel-driven life should look like. And while, yes, he's addressing some problems specifically related to the church in Ephesus where Timothy is serving, he gives us some principles that apply to the church at all times and in all places for all members of the church. And the biggest one is this, that there is something that trumps our rights. That's what's just come before in verses 3 through 7. It's the gospel message. If Jesus is the only way of salvation... And if we as the church are the only method of delivery for that message in a sinful, fallen, broken, dying world, then the urgency of our mission sometimes is going to take precedence over my rights. And so if I was going to summarize these verses and Paul's instructions to men and women in the church, then I would summarize his message to all of us in this way, don't make it about you when it's supposed to be about Jesus. Verse 8 addresses men in the church. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And he says, I desire then. So contrary to how we sometimes read this passage, Paul's not introducing an entirely new subject here. This chapter isn't like two separate writings, one about prayer and then this other one about gender roles in the church. It's all about prayer. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go forward. Paul calls men to pray in light of what we've just learned about the priority of prayer. And already with the call for men to pray, we begin to see part of the problem we have with passages like this one. Because in our churches, it's common to hear, I think, certain members of the church referred to as prayer warriors. Individuals who are intensely committed to the work of prayer. As I reflected on my experience over the course of my life, as I think back, I'm not sure that I've ever heard a man described in that way as a prayer warrior. And I think that should challenge us. Men, we're called to pray because the work of prayer is as urgent as anything else we can do in the service of the church. So how are we to pray? He says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Our prayer should point to God and exalt God, not ourselves, and we're to pray without anger, without quarreling, and I think we've all seen what that looks like. We've known people, known men who distract from the purpose of the church's worship gathering by insisting on their own way with anger or hostility, always looking for a fight. The issue that they're fighting for may vary, but when someone's entire life, entire demeanor becomes marked by this negative, angry, or quarrelsome reputation, then they've forgotten the aim of this whole charge that Paul is giving to Timothy and to us. And at the root of a heart 
that loves being right more than it loves Jesus is a heart that has forgotten the first love of our faith, loving Jesus and sharing his love with others. This was clearly already a problem in the first century. And so Paul's telling men, don't gather for prayer and worship with anger boiling in your veins against one of your fellow brothers or sisters. Don't gather for prayer and worship looking for a fight. Don't make it about you. When we come together, it's supposed to be about Jesus. So, now most of you probably aren't on Twitter, but in recent weeks, I've seen firsthand on Twitter why God inspired Paul to put verse 8 where he did. Over the past month, there's been this debate among Southern Baptists on Twitter concerning what's the proper role of women in the ministry of the church. As Southern Baptists, our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message that we hold in common states this one restriction, that the office of pastor is restricted to men. And that's really all it says on the issue. Why is that all it says? Well, I think it's at least in part an acknowledgement that when we get to verses 9 through 15, there are some difficulties when we try to get our hearts and our minds around these verses. There are sincere, genuine Bible-believing Christians that read these verses and come to slightly different conclusions about how to live them out. That's probably happening right here as we speak. But back to what I've seen on Twitter, I've seen men claiming to follow Christ, claiming to be men of God, attacking or vilifying women or other men who disagree with them about these verses with an anger and vitriol and nastiness that's simply appalling. People, on the one hand, minding their own business, doing their best to live out these verses and to be faithful to the gospel as best they can and to show the love of Jesus and to teach about his word. And then men of God who are vilifying and attacking them with insulting or disgusting attacks. And when that happens on Twitter, or if in our everyday interactions we can encounter a differing point of view without completely losing our temper, then the biggest problem is not with what women are doing or not doing. It's that we're behaving like spoiled children who have to have it all our way. So men, don't make it about you when it's supposed to be about Jesus. Now, women, Paul tells the same thing. Verse 9, he begins with likewise. Again, he's not starting something new here. He's continuing his line of thought from above. Pray for conditions where the gospel will advance. And so when we gather to pray and to worship, men shouldn't be angry and looking for a fight, demanding their way like toddlers. But remember I said the context matters in these letters. Right? So just like we get hints at the misbehavior of the men in the early church in verse 8, so we also get clues as to what was going on with the women in the church here and also elsewhere throughout this letter and the letter to Titus. It seems that one aspect of the false teaching that Paul is calling Timothy to address is a teaching that completely repudiated a woman's role as wife and mother. What I don't mean there is an insistence on the value and worth of women in a culture that denied it. That's not false teaching. That's one of the most persistent themes in the life and ministry of Jesus raising up those who were marginalized by society at that time, and that included women. What I mean by that is there seems to have been this group that was teaching that for any woman to ever marry or to have children, children was wrong or sinful or was a blow to the cause of all women everywhere. That would be an extremist position. That would be a position that goes against what Scripture says. And so, 
Paul himself, we know, writes elsewhere about the gift of singleness for some men and women in the church. He speaks of that in a positive way, saying that God plans that in some people's lives to maximize their impact, to maximize the impact of their gifts for, in the church. Yet Paul celebrates that without ever diminishing the dignity of a woman who pursues a life of marriage and raising children. It's one thing to say that the value or worth of a woman is not dependent on her marrying or having children. The Bible affirms that wholeheartedly. Women and men are both created by God in the image of God, and that is where our value lies. And yet, the Bible also teaches us from Genesis on that God created us male and female to complement one another. Not like nice shoes or I like your hair, but complement right, with an E. To be companions for one another, to help one another. And with that comes differing roles, again, in a way that reflects the nature and the life of God. As with God himself, we see Father, Son, and Spirit, and we see differing roles in creation, differing roles in redemption, and yet that never diminishes their equal dignity, their equal worth, and that is what complementary relationships between men and women are supposed to reflect as well. But, like everything else we see in this world, sin has distorted the image of God and our relationships with one another. And so with all that in mind, Paul writes in verse 9, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That's the core of Paul's message here to the women in the church. Verses 11 through 15 make the headlines, but verses 9 through 10 are the heart of the message. As it was with men in verse 8, Paul's primary concern for women is about character. It's about living a godly life. The point here isn't braided hair or costly attire. The point is that these are not the point, that women should act with modesty, self-control, with good works. You say, well, that doesn't sound really all that different from how men should act in the church. And that's exactly right. Man or woman, we've gone wrong when we make this moment the church gathered about us instead of about Jesus. And so that's the main thing. Don't make it about you. So what do we do then with verses 11 through 15? Two things I'll say before we walk through them and my understanding of them. And that is first, as I've already said, Paul is addressing a specific situation and a specific brand of false teaching here, which was hostile to a biblical understanding of what it meant to be male and female. But the second thing is, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no abiding application for these verses in our lives. This is the word of God. It is breathed out by his spirit from beginning to end and every word in between. And so what does it mean when Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness and everything else that he says after that? I've heard enough sermons and read enough commentaries on these verses this week to do me for a while, but after all that study and prayer and seeking the Lord, here's how I see what Paul is saying here. Paul's main concern is still the same as it was back in verse 2, that we would avoid distractions from the gospel and the church's mission. Right? First of all, we see here no indication that he's making a change of subject. And second, I say that because the word translated quietly and quiet in verses 11 and 12 is nearly identical to the word that's translated quiet 
back up in verse 2. I don't want to press that too far, but I don't think it's a coincidence either. I say that to say this, that if you read these verses with the primary goal of silencing all women at all times and all matters related to the church, then I think we've missed the point. We need to go back and read verses 1 through 8 again and again and understand those better. And so what is Paul teaching here? He's not teaching, as I said, a universal command for women to be silent at all times and in all matters related to the life of the church or with all matters related to faith. There's no way that could be the case. Nor is it the case that Paul is prohibiting women from ever speaking to men on matters related to Christ and to the church. Because this book does not contradict itself. And those views don't fit with what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus. They don't fit with what we see in the book of Acts, specifically Acts 18.26, where Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, pull Apollos aside to explain to him the way of God more accurately. There are other places as well where Paul writes about how women should prophesy in the church. So is this a universal prohibition against women speaking at all times in all matters related to church? I would say absolutely not. So what is Paul teaching here then? What is he trying to tell us? It's my understanding, as I said earlier, it's also I think the position of this church, that Paul is prescribing here that same narrow restriction on women in ministry that I referenced earlier from the Baptist faith and message, that God restricts pastoral authority, the role of preaching and teaching, the entire church gathered for worship to men. Even this restriction really grates on my millennial sensibilities for equity and fairness. There are times I would like to say, like many have said, that these words are descriptive of a first century culture. They're not prescriptive for the church today, but God doesn't leave us that option here because he doesn't root this command in the first century culture. He roots it in the way he created the world. All the way back before sin and injustice ever entered the world. So what Paul is arguing here is that the church should be a place that reflects how creation should have been. It should be a place where men submit to God's leadership by sacrificially serving and loving and laying down their lives for those they're called to lead. And it should be a place where women then submit to God's leadership by submitting to those godly male leaders. That's what Paul is arguing for. Yeah, it's hard because of sin, because we've seen abuses of that authority more times than we can remember. Paul also addresses, though, that in verses 14 and 15, the nature of a fallen world. Again, I think part of the tone of Paul's rhetoric here is due to the extreme positions he's countering here in Ephesus. And so he uses these strong words. He says there, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor transgressor, not transgressor, yeah. Some of you are thinking, though, there, right, this is just typical Paul, and he's always blaming everything on the women. And if that's you, I'd encourage you to spend some time reading Romans chapter 5, though, and see if Paul thinks that sin was all the woman's fault or all Eve's fault. He has some pretty strong words there for Adam and his role in bringing sin to the entire human race. Again, Paul's addressing this idea here that it's a betrayal of all women 
for any woman to marry or to have children. And so he's highlighting the role of Eve in the fall to make the point that God's design is not harmful, but his design is good. That his design for man and woman complementing one another and strengthening one another and helping one another is what is best. It's for our good. In verse 15, he says, you know, even as the sin of Adam and Eve brought with it many consequences, including pain in childbirth, God, we know, is generally faithful to preserve the life of the woman and to bring new life through women, including the life of the one who gives us all new life. And so verse 15 isn't Paul saying that there's some sort of conditional salvation for women. Where Paul's saying only mothers are saved. Again, that would be a repudiation of the gospel. Adding anything to Jesus would be a complete contradiction of everything we see in the New Testament. We're saved by faith in Jesus, and that is it. This is Paul pointing, though, to the goodness of God's design in creation, pointing to the ongoing evidence we see for God's goodness every day in our lives. He is faithful. So, final question on this passage. Does this apply to women teaching men in Sunday school or a small group? This particular passage, I don't believe that's what Paul is addressing here. Paul's focus seems to be here on the church that's gathered for worship. And so I see the most solid support here for this idea that he's restricting the office of pastor and preaching to men. I know that for some of you, as we've kind of gone through this, I've probably gone too far. For others of you, I didn't go far enough. Right? As I said at the beginning, by God's grace, my goal has been to say what God's word says with love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Toward that end, I'd remind you one more time of the bigger picture we see here in chapter 2. Pray for conditions where the gospel will advance. Pray for everyone, those who are near to you and those who are far, friend and foe, not for self-promotion, but that we would have every opportunity to point others to Jesus, just like we do this week with Vacation Bible School. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men, and so let's live with that sense of urgency and with the priority of making Jesus known. There's plenty we can disagree about, plenty that we can fight about, just in interpreting these verses, and there's nothing wrong with a healthy discussion. Right? We actually can disagree with each other without getting angry at each other. We can have unity without uniformity on every single issue, but it only happens if there's love, if there's trust for one another, and trust that God's way is higher than ours. And so making Jesus known is what unites us in a way that's bigger than everything else, even a bunch of sinful people who always want our own way, who have this knack for making it about us when it should be about him. And so to that end, I would say this, that when we as Christians put the needs of others before ourselves, that's when Jesus is most clearly seen in us. That's what we're going to sing as we close, as we respond to God's word this morning is our invitation hymn, Let Others See Jesus in You.